This is the Bartholomew Town Podcast. Welcome into B-Town, Rhode Island's podcast of record. It's Bill Bartholomew here with you as September has come to a close and... Yeah, well, we, we got a long way to go before the actual winter itself, right? And, and plenty to talk about in Rhode Island politics with a special election coming up here in Providence in a couple of days. And uh, look, you know, things are, are starting to move forward for the 2022 races. Obviously, the gubernatorial candidates getting out, um, everyone from Treasurer Magaziner and Secretary of State Gorbea, Dr. Luis Daniel Munoz, and Matt Brown as part of that big Rhode Island political cooperative announcement last week. They're going to run like 50 candidates on a statewide basis. So lots to get to there in that world over the next year or so. But here in Providence, you know, big mayoral race coming up. Jorge Lorza will be term limited. We had Brett Smiley on the program earlier this year. And uh, coming up next week, we'll have Nirva LaFortune, Councilwoman LaFortune, who announced her candidacy over the weekend. But today we welcome Gonzalo Cuervo, someone who is a true Rhode Island politico who's been inside city and state government um, around the activist and engagement communities, if you will, and someone who's just a big part of the Providence community on a number of levels. Um, So his inaugural appearance here on B-Town, now I think we're going to be doing a bunch of things over the course of the next year in terms of the different races. We'll have forums, we'll have more one-on-one interviews, but this is a good chance to get to know candidates that, look, number one, if you're in Providence, you may not even know who all the candidates are, and if you've heard the names or read the names or whatever, you may not understand who these people actually are. So this is that opportunity, and then on a statewide basis, look, as the city of Providence goes, so goes the state of Rhode Island. So you better get to know what's happening here inside the capital city, um, particularly in a time that, look, from an optics perspective and from a practical perspective, honestly, Providence, um, it really needs uh, a lot of rebounding. There's no question about it. I don't think anybody would disagree with that, anybody sensible anyway. So today, Gonzalo Cuervo laying out some of his vision for what the city of Providence can be, and if he were elected mayor, how he would implement that vision. Remember, folks, follow me on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Bill Bartholomew, and go ahead and join the Bartholomew Town Podcast Facebook group for daily discussions on all things Rhode Island politics and beyond. So why run for mayor of Providence? I mean, it's obvious that it's um, it's a high, highly visible and, and essential role, no question about it. But personally, what is it about that that role that is so intriguing to you? Well, Bill, um, I think Providence is a fantastic city. It has great resources, great people, great institutions. As a matter of fact, everybody who comes here from outside falls in love with the city, right, immediately. But I think one of the the biggest challenges that we have in Providence is there's this huge gap between the haves and have-nots. The income inequality in this city only continues to grow and grow and grow. So what we find is that a significant majority of our population doesn't have access or can't really utilize those unbelievable resources that exist in our creative economy, in our meds and eds economy, higher higher ed. And we need to close that gap. And I think that, that I am the candidate who has the lifelong experience as a community organizer, as a small business owner in the past, as somebody who has navigated the halls of City Hall and the State House for years. I spent more than a decade in management positions in the city. I, I understand the city at a very granular level. I've been a part of the community at the street level, at the organizational level, at the city level. And I believe that I have the skill sets and the desire and the passion for the city to really close that gap and really create opportunities, not only for our families so that they can live better, but also so that we can grow the tax base. And that way the city can, can be healthy and prosperous 
and sustainable over the long time to tackle some of the bigger issues that we have to face. It's interesting. You know, this past weekend I was, um, well, I was, I was actually all over the place in terms of the Northeast region, but when I came back to Providence, you know, and, and you see this haves and have not divide everywhere and, and even in small towns, but I'm out here in Elmwood and there's no question that when you're talking about Elmwood, lower South Providence, Washington Park, so on and so forth, even in the, the North and Northwestern portions of the city, there's a disconnect from when I was walking around at the Providence Flea or when you go to the bridge or Plant City or all the excitement on the 195 land, there's a huge disconnect there that you feel in infrastructure, education, and so on and so forth, but also in, in, vibe. The in the energy in, in level. Vibe. Exactly. Yeah. Energy. Right, right. Yeah. There's, there's one Providence for people that are doing amazing creative things. And there's another Providence for people that are just sustaining themselves and getting by, living paycheck to paycheck, driving for Uber, doing whatever it takes. You know, you know, my, in my old, my old neighborhood in Washington Park, you know, in the 90s, when I first moved there, everybody had a job at a company. And now you go there and everybody either drives for Uber or has a home daycare or is patching together multiple little jobs to get by. And it's really unfortunate. It's really unfortunate because that not only creates stagnation for the family and limits opportunities for our youth, but it, it also limits our ability to grow the tax base, to make the investments in the big issues that we need to address as a city. And it impacts even the people who are living well, even the people who are doing the great creative things, even the people who live in the beautiful homes on the east side. It impacts everybody. How do we how do we actually close that gap? What are the steps? Because I mean, big picture, you'd say, oh yeah, well, education is one thing, infrastructure is another thing. Um, there's policing elements to it. There's all kinds of parks, recs, intangibles as well that go into it. But like on a specific basis, how can with a an eight year plan, the term of the terms of a mayor, how what can be done to really close that that gap right there? So I think one of the first things we really need to focus on is, is economic, de economic development at the neighborhood level. And I think we, we, we've talked a good game about that for years, but we don't really put our money where our mouth is because what you find is when you pull back the curtain and you realize that we talk about how we want to support small businesses and everything, but when a small business goes to a bank and they can't get a loan and then they go to the city to the revolving fund and the city says, well, you can't get a loan either because you don't have your financials in order, you don't have this in order, you don't have that in order. And so we limit that creativity. And so what we end up finding is people leaving, you know, our youth leaves to, to find jobs, to create businesses elsewhere. And the reality is with the new economy as it is, you know, mobility is people can start a business or work from just about anywhere. So we're not, we're not, we're not competing with Cranston and Pawtucket, we're competing with the world. And I think what we need to do is say, we need to be intentional about investing in our small businesses, particularly minority enterprise. You know, we have the, the city's more than 45% Latino. When you add up Latinos, African-Americans, Southeast Asians, and other minorities, we're two thirds of the city. And there's so much talent and so much potential in there. Yet, when you go to the, our neighborhood districts, most of these businesses are run by, by, by people of color, but most of these businesses exist on a subsistence model. They get by because they have their 15 relatives working there. They, they maybe expand because they found some guy to give them a random loan on the street at some ridiculous interest rate. You know, they aren't really being supported. And I think, imagine what we could do if we were intentional about investing in these small businesses, which would turn around and create more jobs to hire more local people. If we actually held people accountable every time we gave out a TSA, every time we entered into a deal to, to, to bring a large employer here, 
and they they sign you know the the these agreements where they're going to hire X number of Providence folks and they're going to invest in our in our housing fund. And we many times we are terrible at enforcing those measures. And I think if we look at that economic development aspect, you know, that has an impact on everything. Obviously, we need to improve our schools. Obviously, we need to address public safety at a global level, understanding what being safe means to people, you know. And and but I believe that economic development is a critical piece. Because if we're not creating a pipeline for jobs and small business development in our in our city, what we're just hemorrhaging talent. We're having kids leave continuously. You know, my my son, when he graduated from URI, most of his classmates from Providence ended up getting jobs elsewhere. They moved to Atlanta, they moved to New York, they moved to, you know, some of them moved to Boston. And and we keep hemorrhaging talent. And then you listen to the business class and they're like, oh, we can't find talent. Well, because all the talent is leaving, because there's, you know. There's not there's not like a synergy between the talent that is emerging from the city and the folks that are in search of talent. Couldn't agree more. And and you touch on something that's so relevant right now, which is this notion of work from anywhere. And I think it's going to change. And if you pay attention to New York real estate prices or Boston, it's kind of popping back up. Things are kind of resetting. And I think that in a year or two, you know, people are going to have to be in the office, but whatever. But Still, there's a big demand for what I kind of call the satellite cities, Newport, Providence, to a certain extent, New Haven, and so on and so forth. And people who may have been in Boston or New York are flocking here. And that creates a displacement situation in terms of housing, and it expands the divide if there are not measures put in place to address the housing crisis and also to make sure that there's not a barrier between those new ideas and new opportunities and the community that's been here for generations. How do we address the housing crisis? And then how does that translate into sparking energy in the city for both the new arrivals and the, and the community that, that has been here for decades? Well, I think that housing is, is probably one of the most critical issues facing our city. Because, you know, we talk a lot about low-income housing, but really we have a housing crisis at the mid-level, you know, what, what some people refer to as workforce housing. You know, we the prices in Providence are going through the roof because people from Boston and Connecticut and other parts continue to invest here and move here because it's so affordable compared to where they are. And if you think about it, if you live in a suburb of Boston, it takes you an hour to get to downtown. And if you live in Providence, it might take you an hour and 20 minutes, an hour and 30 minutes yeah. to get to downtown with traffic in the morning. But the reality is if you can buy a, a property for 40% less in Providence versus you know a suburb that geographically seems to be near Boston, but because of traffic patterns, takes almost as long to get there while people are buying here. And I think one of the things we need to do is we need to, to be more creative about the way we address housing in Providence. I think we need to increase density. I think we need to look at a lot of our zoning laws and we need to say, how can we build more density into the city? This city, you know, we we assume that this city is completely built out. It's not. We have many empty lots. We have many obsolete housing stock units that need to be rebuilt. If you look at downtown, like something like a third of the surface area of downtown is surface parking lots. Like there's there's a reason why a century ago, there were 250,000 people living in Providence. You know, you can, you know, Providence has the ability to grow. And if we think about that, housing is absolutely an economic development issue because if you're cost burden in your housing, and we know currently that 50% of people who live in Providence are renters, and more than half of those are cost burden, which means they're paying 
They're, they're paying an outrageous amount of their income into living. And, you know, the, the more people, the more money that people have to invest in other things other than rent or a mortgage payment, the more they stimulate the economy and the more we can grow because, you know, when people spend money, they pay taxes and the city has the opportunity to capture that and, and take care of some of the issues that, that we've been slacking on for a while. Support for B-Town comes from our listeners who visit patreon.com slash Town or click the support link wherever you're listening right now. Another major issue here is, and it's actually multifaceted because there's the reality and there's the perception, both of which are critical, and that is crime and in turn, the police department. Speaking to the police department, Chief Clements recently noted that he believes and an assessment indicates we need 448 police officers for Providence to be effectively enforcing crime uh, or, or enforcing laws and, and preventing crime and, built, and integrating into the community. At the same time, there are advocates who are in the streets calling for the complete abolishment of the police. So there's this dichotomy of expand and contrast, if you will, that's happening in terms of just the conversation. But then there's also this notion of Oh, somehow Providence, if you go there, somebody's going to jump out underneath a pedestrian bridge and, you know, mug you or whatever that somebody in the southern part of the state has. So how do we sort of ameliorate all of this at once? And what what's the middle ground here? Because there has to be something in, in, in terms of a compromise, I would assume. Well, you know, Chief Clement, when he made his his assertion about needing the, the higher number of police officers, he also acknowledged in that presentation to the city council that having more police officers would would help the police address a lot of the quality of life issues and would actually impact the perception of a crime reduction more than the actual reduction in crime. So there's the, there's the issue of perception versus reality. And we're not going to change the reality that we live in the year 2021 where we're flooded with news and we're flooded with information that didn't happen. You know, in the 80s, in 1991, there were more than 40 murders in the city of Providence. And, and the 90s and the 80s were a very violent time in the city. And people were, for the most part, oblivious. Unless you were watching the six o'clock news, you had no idea that this stuff was happening. Now we're constantly flooded by this and it's really impacted perception and has hurt us at many different levels. Now, I think that, that we have to look at what safety means for different people. And safety doesn't just mean flooding the, the streets with more police officers. Because if we look at suburban communities, particularly, you know, wealthy suburban communities, you go to East Greenwich, you go to Lincoln, there's two or three cops on duty at any given moment. Yeah. And you wonder, like, why are there only two or three cops on duty? And usually they're just handing out tickets for the most part for speeders and people. Because those communities are full of people whose needs are met. They have no incentive to commit crime. As a matter of fact, committing a crime would be a disincentive. It would complicate their lives. And so we need to we need to say, okay, look, the police plays a critical role. It's a difficult job. Our police needs to be supported. We also need to hold bad actors accountable, which is something that we've been terrible at for a very long time. And that builds community confidence. But we also need the we also need to understand that that addressing crime and addressing the perception of crime is more than just flooding the street with police officers because because there are many issues at play and providence is not the only city that has seen a spike in crime and obviously it hits close to home you know i live on mount pleasant avenue i live on, on a main on a main road and and i see what that what happens and you know and i realize that that perception equals reality and it's very disheartening and heartbreaking when when you see the loss of life or people being assaulted and people saying, well, I don't really want to go into Providence anymore. 
is really unfortunate. But I think a lot of that has to do with leadership too, Bill. I think um, the 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 way that that the city administration has managed police community relations has been a little bit um, haphazard and not well thought out. And what that has created is created skepticism on all sides. The, the police doesn't feel confident in their civilian leadership. The population doesn't feel confident that that their their safety is being kept as a priority and we're all losing as a result very well said and i think that there's it's the root causes and some people you know when there's a a, a crime situation that's um blockbuster and it's crime is you know an exaggerated term a lot of times but when there's a situation that creates the type of news stories or conversation that people can pile on a lot of times people will kind of roll their eyes when you say, well, wait a minute, that, you know, we need to develop everything from parks and, and activities to just trust in institutions. What do you think the biggest need is right now in Providence? I mean, it's education jumps out, but just to get people who are residents to say, you know what, this city is here for me. And it's, I have a chance in a short amount of time to live a quality life without having to resort to modes of desperation that oftentimes lead to crime. Yeah. Well, I think, I think there, in terms of, of, of that crime, people, people is particularly young people who get involved in crime for the most part, don't get involved because they're evil. They get involved because it's a way to earn a living. It's the way to make money when they can't find any other path. You know, it's hard. It's hard to, um, for a, a lot of our kids to, uh, to, to find jobs, you know, when they're teenagers. And so the opportunity to make some quick money on the corner becomes appealing and that becomes a slippery slope, which leads to uh, an increase in the, um, in the aggressive, uh, the aggressiveness of, of the crime that they're involved in. So I think we need to create opportunities, uh, pathways for our youth to be able to have, to have summer jobs, to have after school jobs, to have programs where, where they have mentorship opportunities, where they have leadership development opportunities where we can create a pipeline for our youth. One of the things that you see is we we complain so much about how terrible our schools are. Yeah, every year we graduate hundreds of kids from our schools that go on to college and then we lose them. Like we lose track of them, we lose them after college, they go on and many of them move away because they don't find opportunities here. I think we can create a pipeline of success so that we can bring together our business leaders, we can bring together our, our, our school community and our parents and say, here's, here's a, a consistent pipeline of um, paid internships that are related to your career path that will not only create income for you now, but will create the experiential learning for you to be able to take a job in that sector when you graduate from college or when you graduate from trade school, if you want to be an electrician or a plumber or a carpenter, which are fantastic careers as well. And I think we need to be intentional and creative about that. And I think what ends up happening is that we just get lost in talking points. Yeah. And, that, you know, we, we've become uh, uh, a nation of technocrats that have beautiful talking points and can pull the trigger on nothing. Wow, that is that's uh that's a great bite right there. <laughs> you know, cuz it's so sad but true. All right, last question. You have experience as you said at the top of the episode in city hall, you have experience in the state house as a deputy secretary of state, you have experience as a community leader. Do you believe that that is the number one thing that qualifies you, your experience to be the next mayor of Providence over the other really two primary candidates that are in the race right now? in terms of your ability to connect to both the institutions of government 
business um, policy and and procedures, but then also the average everyday person that lives across the the city from Washington Park all the way up to the uh, Pawtucket North Providence border. I've been doing that for nearly 30 years, Bill. I, I, I started as a community organizer when I was 19. I'm 47 years old. I've been involved in, in Providence organizations and community groups and local level politics my entire life, continuously since I was 19 years old. And helping, helping organizations grow, helping uh, organizations build capacity, also helping small businesses. And, and I think that, that I have a unique uh, per, uh, perspective as a result of that. Because not only have I been a, a, a ground level organizer, not only have I served on a number of boards and continue to serve on a number of Providence-based organizational boards that range in a, a diverse uh, areas of work, but I I was in City Hall. I you know during the Tavares administration, we were able to do some some really great work in in tackling some of the pension issues and tackling a lot of uh, structural issues that existed in the city to create a sustainable future for the city. And when I was deputy secretary of state, I helped the secretary pass an ambitious legislative package that, that created greater opportunity for, for people to, to hit the polls, to go voting, to expand voting, and to, to really reform lobbying oversight for transparency in government. And I think the, this um, kind of very diverse package of experiences over the course of more than two decades is something that I would put against any other candidate. Um, at this point. Rhode Island's podcast of record, B-Town.